Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, and we want to begin by reading the first four verses of that chapter, verses 1 through 4. As James mentioned, that we're in a really kind of a 12-week series I called Life Matters, and we dealt, first of all, for the first four weeks with the issue of marriage matters. Uh, now, this next four weeks, we're going to be talking about family matters. And then the last four weeks, we're going to do with money matters. And I tell you, the money matters issue was important to me to get that in before Christmas because a lot of people end up getting in trouble during Christmas time. But I'll save you that uh, lecture until that point in time. Uh, but anyway, I'm pretty excited because I think that what we understand is that not only does a nation find its fate connected directly to the health or ill health of their families, but so also our own personal life experiences. As we talk about the importance of the marriage relationship, understand the most important gift a parent can give their kids is a healthy marriage. There's nothing that will help them to go forward in a positive way better than to have parents who are anchored in Christ and anchored in their love for each other. But that still presents the challenge of parenting. And the thing I like about parenting or don't like about parenting, it's there's probably no greater guilt-producing thing that you can do in your life than to become a parent. Uh, if you aren't a parent yet, you may be sitting there scratching your head. Just wait. You'll find out. <laughs> so anyway, before I get too far down that road, would you please stand with me as we begin reading this passage together? Uh, <clears throat> Beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle writes, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, quote, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask for your assistance this morning as I venture into this very important topic. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give us insight into the truths of your word, even as you give us insight into the truths about ourselves. We don't want to be people who are play-acting, Lord. We don't want to be pretending that everything is wonderful when we may in fact be struggling intensely. We want to humbly come before you and say, God, give us your grace and your help. Be the difference maker in our life. We believe you for this, Lord. Open our understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we read these instructions by Paul, they're short, they're simple, they're straightforward. And it could easily give you the impression that all those adjectives apply to parenting as well. And if you came to that conclusion, you soon enough will discover that you're completely wrong. Uh, but I say that before my wife and I had kids, we didn't see that parenting was going to be that great a challenge. In fact, I remember when I began to look at these creatures of delight, and as they grew, they came to look more like creatures from the Black Lagoon. And um, I knew right away that I was way over my head and out of my depth and it was just at that critical moment where I was really beginning to get to struggle in the challenge of parenting that my pastor at the time, Chuck Smith, stood up and gave a message on Proverbs 22.6. And here was his opening comment. It, it, it stuck with me so strongly, I went and wrote it down because I never wanted to forget it. He made the following observation. He said, before I was a parent, I knew just about everything there was to know about parenting. That was until my wife and I had our first child. Soon I realized that there were a few things I had not yet learned. And as our family grew, I came to realize that there was quite a bit about parenting that I did not understand. When my children reached their teenage years, I came to recognize that I knew very little about parenting. But now that my children are grown and I'm a grandparent, I have to admit I know absolutely nothing about parenting. 
You see, the more we know in life, in just about any arena that you point to, the more you realize that you don't know. It's kind of like reading the Bible. I think that almost nearly 50 years of studying this book, I am still really staggered by the depth of wisdom and knowledge that goes beyond my ability to comprehend. That it is an unfathomable, unsearchable book of riches and truths. But that's really kind of true about most things, that you find that the more highly educated and informed a person is, the humbler they become about their area of skill or, or expertise because they realize no matter how much they know, there is so much more yet to know. So the idea that at some point you come to this exhaustive understanding of what it means to be married or what it means to be a parent is an illusion that still soon is disproved by life itself. Because if we go all the way back to the very beginning where the book starts, in fact it says in the beginning, and we look at the first parent there ever was, God the Father, he had two children who kind of went off the rails and got in trouble and brought death and destruction upon all of us ever since. Cute little couple named Adam and Eve. And if it wasn't bad enough there, you go on to look at Adam and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel, and one of their kids murders their, his brother. So that from the very earliest points of history, we realize that even though God created a family within the safest and most comfortable environment, they had a place, had a, a way of ruining that and bringing destruction. And this is due in part to the fact that parenting isn't a simple one-dimensional dynamic. That parenting is multifaceted. In fact, when you realize what shapes and molds us, you begin to understand the complexity. Because you are who you are today because of three diverse factors. The very first one is nature. That genetically you were coded by your parents and that predisposed you to all sorts of personality traits. In fact, geneticists now today tell us that half of all personality is something that you're hardwired with. Whether you're gregarious or you're introverted or you're, you know, you're shy or you're bubbly and you're the friend of every person on the earth, those kind of things are predispositions that people come into the world with. In the same way that your hair color, your eye color, uh, your height, and other dimensions of who you are are predisposed by the parents that you have, so also do we find that personality in many ways is a reflection of that. So that that's why we can look at our parents as we age and say, you know, I'm beginning to look a lot like them. It's that day, for me at least, where you look down at your hands and discover these used to be on my father's arms. And you recognize that this has been carried over, but so I do I find that my fascinations with history and books and deep thoughts so deep that I don't hear anybody talking to me when I'm in it used to irritate me as a young man. Now I irritate people around me with that same focused concentration. And you realize you come to that honestly. So nature itself is this amazing predisposer towards certain personality traits and behaviors. But also, secondly, what I call nurture or your environment. There are things that play upon those basic characteristics and may accentuate them for the positive or may accentuate them for the negative. For example, take somebody who is basically an introverted personality. They, they're singular relational. They are exhausted by highly intense interactions with large groups of people. And so you take that person and you begin to mock them, or if you have a family environment that criticizes and pushes against that, it develops that introversion into an insecurity and a shyness where the person becomes afraid to step out of the shadows. So that these things are factors that affect who we are and, and how we see the world around us. But maybe the biggest issue is not nature and is not nurture, but the biggest factor is what I call the nonsense. Or we might want to just simply term it sin because I had to come up with an N-word to make it all fit together. <laughs> but it's especially this third aspect of, of influences in our life that has a major implication upon who we become and how we negotiate life. And I think that that's 
part of why I find that Christian parents set themselves up for frustration and failure because somehow in the church we have created this concept that good parenting is the consequence of perfect parents who create perfectly sinless kids. Now, let's just be a little analytical here for a moment. Why is that such a ridiculous expectation? Well, first of all, you have to begin with what you're dealing with as a parent. Your kid is a sinner. They have a natural attraction to things that, you know, you may not be particularly happy about. I never found that I ever had to teach my kids to lie, cheat, and steal. They learn that all on their own. In fact, child psychologists tell us that children start lying somewhere between 18 months and 24 months. And they do it for a very pragmatic reason, to get out of trouble or at least to attempt to do so. Some of the funniest moments of my kids' growing up years was watching them learning how to lie because they were such whoppers and they were so bad at it. And I used to encourage them. i say, you just keep on lying and one day you'll get as good at it as I am. <laughs> I mean, that's the difference between immaturity and maturity. What we do is we become more sophisticated in our lying, but it's something that's with us forever because it's part of that sin nature, that's part of that desire to avoid responsibility so that even as we talked about Adam and Eve and their sin, we have to understand that at the heart of what they were doing was lying to themselves and lying to God. Covering their nakedness on their own was part of the self-lie. Blaming each other for what went wrong was part of the lie and so when you talk about children, and many times we say it's so important that our children learn to be honest, and I'm not disagreeing with that, but you have to understand that it comes out of them naturally without trying. I'll never forget my, my son, Britt, when he was, my wife walked into the kitchen and the, the lid was off the cookie jar and, you know, chocolate smeared all over his face and his cheeks were puffed out like a chipmunk. And she looked at him and said, did you get into the cookies? And he very honestly looked at her and go, no. <laughs> I mean, you just go, you're not good at this yet, but I'll give you time. You'll get better. You'll get better. You'll explain to me that it wasn't your fault that the car got run into. You know, you, we'll, have, we'll have better stories. But we have to understand that this is what we're dealing with. But secondly, you're a sinner too. And you're going to be subject to all the pressures that means that you won't be capable of doing it all right all the time. I love it how every one of us tends to grow up and say, you know, I'm not going to be like my dad was or like my mom was. I'm going to be different from my parents. I'm going to do a better job than they do. And then one day you come to this awareness that you have simply duplicated everything they taught you. You see, the problem is that when we grow up in a family, we are passive absorbers, passive learners for the first 12 years. Until the age of puberty, we pretty much look at our parents and what they do, and that is normal. It was an amazing moment for me when my wife helped me to recognize that the childhood that I, house that I grew up in was pretty dysfunctional because dysfunctionality was so normal to me that I thought that's the way everybody lived and didn't understand why other people didn't. But you discover over time that, as the, as the Scriptures say in, in, in Exodus 20, that the sins of the father are passed on to the children for the third and the fourth generation. That I am struggling today with stuff that's a fault of my great-grandfather, and I don't even know who he was. But it's passed down because those patterns of behaviors are modeled and absorbed and it's only when we come into the teen years that we go through this thing called differentiation where we see ourselves being separate from our parents and having our own identity. And many times that leads to what we call teenage rebellion. But it's really a kid trying to figure out how am I distinct from my mom and dad? How, who am I in for myself? And we, they challenge and they question. And it's an important passage for them to go through. But you have to understand that there are many things that are really formulated in them long before that day comes. And I personally believe that the only way that we can change those things that are unhealthy in us is by being reparented. 
Not reparented by a person, but being reparented by God. I believe this is what Jesus was implying when he said, Call no man on earth your father, for you only have one father, and he is in heaven. That when I became a Christian, I had to step back from the model and example of my parents and begin to question it, not simply because other people were different and I was going through puberty and teenage rebellion, but I began to question their values and the things I was taught based upon what the Word of God said. And as I began to see that many of the things that they had really implanted in me went against what God wanted, I had to choose who was going to be the father. I had to be willing to say, God, I want you to reparent me. So a big part of becoming an effective parent is allowing yourself to be reparented by the Holy Spirit of God as he takes you through the knowledge and understanding of his word. Again, why I would emphasize it's so important if you're going to be effective in your relationships, in marriage, and in family, and in every other area, that you begin to understand what Scripture says, that you read it yourself, because as you do, God will put His finger on the exact and specific things that He wants to change in you. But He will not touch and He will not change until you invite Him to do so. And that's what confession is called. Lord, this is an area of weakness or failure or misunderstanding or in my life, I invite you to do what you need to do to change that. And you become more effective. But thirdly, not only are our children sinners and we are sinners, but we live in an inherently sinful world that's filled with so many obstacles to effective parenting. And I, even beyond obstacles, there are so many things that are negatively affecting the family today that I really feel like saying parents today are uniquely embattled by social forces that are literally, whether they're intended or not, are going to destroy not only marriages and families, but the society as a whole. It's going to lead to the ultimate destruction. And I don't say that because I'm pessimistic. I'm saying it because not only does Scripture teach that, but also the lessons of history have taught us that so many times. And yet, as usual, as Santiana said, we are condemned to commit the same errors because we are ignorant of the facts of history. So here we are, we, we as Christians get under this pressure to say, I've got to raise these kids who uh, never uh, sin and certainly never embarrass me. I just remember a conversation one time with a gentleman and he was telling me, he says, well, I, I, my kids do not have permission to embarrass me. And I said, well, you're going to be surprised, they're not going to ask for it. <laughs> they're just going to do it all on their own. And how we react to those embarrassing moments may say more about us than it does about them. Because the same way when I taught my kids how to ride a bike, I did not expect them to be able to get it the first time. I knew that there were going to be some crashes down the road. And so, you know, I'm running along trying to steady the bike as they're teetering and tottering and hopefully they'll get it. And eventually I would see them take off and they'd do this huge loop and they'd be so excited until they reached back to where I was and then didn't know how to stop or get off and crashed. And they, you know, they had to crash several times before they learned how to stop and get off without injuring themselves. But you recognize that's how learning happens that you find that the greatest tool leading to success is failure. And as a parent, you're going to fail a lot. You're going to do and say the wrong things. You're going to react incorrectly. And you have to understand that those failures aren't fatal. What is fatal is the unwillingness to admit that you've failed. You see, Cicero was the, the great Roman uh, uh, philosopher and writer, said that all men fail, it's only the fool who refuses to admit it. And that's kind of something we find that the Proverbs would say in, in, in different words, but in certainly the same energy. So that when we talk about parenting, you have to understand it is an incredibly challenging thing, but also a life-shaping thing. We learn more about the nature of God the Father through being a father and a mother. We more, learn more about what it means to 
have that kind of relationship with God as we discover how to walk with God and help our children to come to the same experience. And even in saying all these things, I haven't even touched on the cost of raising a kid. I mean, it's staggering. Today, it's around $250,000 to take a child from birth to, uh, to college. They say with inflation, it'll be $350,000 by the time you get done. So if you're just starting a family, you may want to start keeping your pocket change. It doesn't even touch on the issue of the amount of energy that's required that, uh, and what, a, what, a, what a, an amazing experience it was for me to discover that babies didn't sleep through the night. And it wasn't any better when they came teenagers because they were still keeping me up at night. And I think about those crazy moments when you're sitting there and you've got this car key in your hand and you're turning this vehicle, which has a potential death threat, not, not to mention how much it costs, and you're handing that key into the hand of this teenager with pimply face, and you know better, but somehow you feel compelled to do it, and they drive away by themselves. These are telling moments. These are troubling moments. But when we look at the cost, the time, and the energy to require into parenting, it's not surprising, really, that more and more people are choosing not to go that route. And what's really kind of interesting is that there's nothing that predestines a society to collapse faster than not reproducing themselves. You see, as your population begins to, they call stabilize, the, the welfare of the culture begins to collapse. China is in great danger because of their one-child policy. Now they've expanded a two-child policy. We're saying, well, they've got a billion people. Yeah, but you see, their population is shrinking. So is Russia. Their population is shrinking. And that predestines, economists will tell you, that will predestine the country to economic collapse and failure. The only way around that is for lots of immigrants to come into your country to continue to boost your population. But let me layer on one more factor if I haven't painted a scary enough picture for you. Again, our kids are sinners. We're sinners. We live in a sinful world. We live in a sinful world that's expensive and it drains our energy. But the bottom line is that life, at least from a human perspective, is not fair. Some people were simply more fortunate in life's lottery than others. I mean, if you came from a stable family, if you grew up uh, with better role models than somebody else, then the issue of how to parent can become a bit easier because you have a reference point. But so many today, increasingly so many today, are growing up in homes where one parent, biological parent, is absent. There's so many who are growing up with all sorts of dysfunctionality within their homes. And so when it comes to the challenge of how do I parent my kids, they're struggling, they're at a loss because intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually even, they may not be prepared for the challenges that are before them. This has become so obvious that actually some social observers are saying that parents should have to get a license to parent and I might, I might agree with that if it were not for the fact that if we're honest, none of us is qualified. None of us is competent enough to parent, at least by the standards that God has set forth in His Word. Because of this, God knows. Even before we have kids, that He needs to interfere in the parenting plan that you have. That God knows that he needs to inject himself, and he does it in three ways. He does it, first of all, by the declaration of his sovereignty. Now, the word sovereignty means that you're in control. You're the boss. You control not just some things, but you control everything. That's why they used to refer to the king as being the sovereign, because he had absolute power and authority. And God says, I want you to know from the get-go that I have absolute power and authority over your kids. Now, 
If you're just starting parenting, you may think, well, I, I can handle this. But if you have kids and they've aged a bit, you know, like they're three weeks or four weeks, you're at that point where you want somebody else to step in and take control. As somebody once said, the, the mother of preschoolers only have one-dimensional emotional beings. They are tired. That's it. And you really wish there was someone in control. And it's such a comfort because, for example, in Psalm 139, the Lord says, he sa the psalmist says to the Lord, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. In other words, God is declaring that your life is not just the random collision of circumstance and serendipity, but your life is following the plan of God. Now, some people are going to come to me and say, wait a minute, this just happened to me. Are you telling me that was God's plan? And I'm going to say, yeah, I don't necessarily understand it. It's not the way I would have structured it. But God says that there's nothing that touches you that doesn't first pass through me. In fact, it doesn't pass through passed to you until it passes through his nail-pierced hands. That's why Jeremiah said, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And I think the first thing as Christian parents we need to understand is that God knew your child before he or she was conceived within your womb. And that he has a plan and a purpose and a will that he is going to fulfill in them. Now, I have a pastor friend who's got a son who is uh, pretty deeply immersed in the homosexual lifestyle. And when we've talked about it, he has an interesting comment on it. He said, well, I said, how's he doing? And he'd say, well, he's still writing his testimony. And I always appreciated that because instead of sitting and saying, well, he's not living up to our standards and he's not where we want to be and we're so embarrassed. No, he is just in the process of writing his testimony because he belongs to Jesus. And that may seem like wishful thinking to some of you because you don't need that encouragement yet. But the day will come when you look at your kids and just simply say, God, if you don't have them, then they are in trouble. I believe you to have control over their life. I entrust them to you. In your sovereignty, you have a plan that isn't my plan. And we'll talk a little bit more further on about the problem of our plans for our kids but it's beginning by recognizing that God sovereignly has ordained a will and a purpose for your kid's life. Why do I say that? Because secondly, what he makes a promise to us, that not only is he sovereign control, but he has sovereignly sanctified them. Now, the word sanctify means to separate from the profane and move it into the category of the holy. And Paul makes an interesting statement in 1 Corinthians 7, 14. He's writing to men and women who are married to non-Christians, and he writes them this word of encouragement. He says this, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, through her faith. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. And he says, Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. In other words, what Paul is saying is that God brings a special moving of his Holy Spirit in the life of kids who have a believing parent. And I would say it's doubly so in the life of kids who have two believing parents. Now, I, I know this for a fact, because when my kids were growing up, God would tell me things. I mean, I just would know certain stuff, and I would check up on it and usually bust them, and they would always say, well, how did you find out? And I just love to say, well, you know, I was just praying, and God told me. And it was suddenly this realization that God was following them 24-7. His eye is always on the sparrow, the, the, uh, the song says, and it's also always on your kids. He is white on rice in their life. 
and he knows everything. And when you begin to realize that God is following them, that they are never out there on their own, even though you may feel that they need you to continually helicopter and hover over them, but they are never without God. He is always present, and he is doubly actively present when you are praying that his Holy Spirit be moving in their life. But not only is there sovereignty, not only is there sanctification, but thirdly, there's the issue of just simple grace. W. E. Vine, in his expository dictionary of New Testament words, uses part of the definition of the word grace this way. He says that grace is the merciful kindness by which God, exerting His holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps them, strengthens them, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, and affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. The part I think is most important is that in His merciful kindness, what is the cause of God's Spirit's working? His mercy, His kindness. You see, mercy is giving you what you don't deserve when you deserve something very bad. God gives you mercy. He takes away the consequence that you deserve, and in His kindness towards you and towards others, He exerts His holy influence. I believe this is a promise that God is making to parents, that He says, as you seek me, I will exert my influence in the life of your children. One of the things that's the most staggering thing to me is that all of my kids are are followers of Jesus. Now, they've had their issues, as we all have. But there's never been that question in their life, they're followers of Jesus. And it's interesting because as they were growing, the only standard we set for them is saying, you can do and be whatever you want, wherever you want, but you have to know Jesus and you have to follow Him. And the amazing thing is the exertion of the Holy Spirit's influence welds that into their minds. And God promises that, that if we train up a child in the way he or she should go, that when they become, they won't turn from it. Now, I know some of you will struggle with that passage. That's why we'll dedicate a whole weekend just to that passage. What exactly does that mean? But there is a fundamental truth in this idea that God says, I put my mark on them because of your faith, and I'm exerting influence in their life. And I say that as a word of encouragement because there will be times you'll look at their choices and their actions and their decisions and their behaviors, and you're wondering if that's true. You'll sit back and say, I feel like that they're just gone off the rails and they'll never come back. Don't go there. Because in the time of crisis, we first appeal to the very promises and nature of God, and God makes a promise that I control the universe, that I have a plan for their life, and I am exerting my divine influence upon their life, even when you can't see it happening. Which brings me to this question, and it's an important one, I think. All this to me was really great news. When I began to understand this, I began to relax a lot as a parent. It's funny, when you relax as a parent, you stop overreacting, and you tend to be a better parent. You know, you ask my four kids, the three older ones, there's eight years between uh, my third son, my third child, and the youngest, Brian. Eight years gap in there, and uh, they, the older kids often comment that he had different parents. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so much truth to that. I, it's like Steve Martin says in that movie, Parenthood, you know, the first one you worry about all the time, and by you get to the third one, they can be juggling knives and you don't even notice. There's, there's something that happens. As a grandparent, I'm phenomenal. Kids get into all their craziness and wackiness, and I just kind of chuckle and say, oh, they'll outgrow it. They'll get over it because you have some experience with it, and you do realize that God is faithful to His Word because it's that promise, you know, that there's no place so low that you and I can go. There's no place so far that we can find ourselves that God can't even not just reach us, but he's already there when we get there. That's why he said, even though I go into hell, you are there. 
that God is that ultimate redeemer who doesn't have to run to find you, but he's gone before you. And when you get to the lowest point, God says, I've been here all the time. God simply hasn't left the onerous task and duty of successfully parenting our children into your and my incompetent hands alone. Now, that doesn't mean that we're free from any responsibility. As we'll see, there are at least three things I think that Paul outlines here, identifies in this passage, that are things that we need to attend to. But before I get to that, I just want to ask you something else. And it deals with what are your goals for your kids? What are your parenting goals? What, what are the highest ambition for their lives? What is it that you would identify as success for them? Because what you're going to find, and I talk about that 12 formative years before puberty, you're going to find that the things that you esteem are the things that they will value. The things that you believe are most important are the things that they will consider to be most important. They will esteem, value, and strive for the same things that you esteem, value, and strive for as adults. And again, the power of that imprinting, you have to understand so that many times when I talk with, with parents who are having difficulties, it has never occurred to them that they have set goals for their kids, and now they're disappointed because the kids haven't reached that goal when those goals weren't God's plan. In my own relationship with my parents, the hardest thing for them to accept was that they didn't care if I became a Christian as long as I became a lawyer also. You know, and I think my dad had some personal motivation in that because of business practices, but nonetheless, it's it was this thing that it was like, you can do, I don't care what you believe, just do this. And I, I remember having to sit down there and tell my dad, no, God's called me to be a pastor. Now you have to understand, when I was five years old, I remember my dad saying, you can be anything you want, just don't become a religious or become a pastor. Don't become a preacher. I can't stand those guys. They work one day a week. You know, he... <laughs> I mean, I grew up listening to this and believing this was true, and here I am as a young man saying, Dad, I'm not going to become a lawyer. I feel like God's called me to be a pastor. And my dad's reaction was, oh, <laughs> literally, where did I go wrong? He never said that when I was getting drunk. He never said that when I was using drugs. When my hair was down, well, my hair didn't go down. My hair went out. He, he didn't care that I looked like a, a toothpick or a, a, a Q-tip. But what he really cared about was that I was throwing my life away becoming a preacher. And I remember being a bit confused but understanding. And I had to come to this realization, my parents' goals, what they have defined as being successful, is not how God has defined success for me. And you have to understand that you may be pressuring your children to perform and to reach a goal that isn't God's plan for their life. That the role of the parents is not to tell their kids what God's plan for their life is. The goal of the parents or the role of the parents is to pray together with their children to help them discover what is God's will for your life. And sometimes it takes twists and turns that you don't expect. When my oldest son came to me and said, uh, I'm not going to be a doctor. I feel like God's calling me into the ministry. I went, where did I go wrong? <laughs> Haven't you seen enough? <laughs> but you, you just realize that you can't control that if God is calling them. And that's what you want them to discover. You want them to come to the point where they want to live for Jesus. The poet Edgar Guest expressed, I think, the, the challenge that is before us so clearly. He wrote the following. He says, There are little eyes upon you, and they're watching night and day. There are little ears that quickly take in every word you say. 
There are little hands all eager to do anything you do. A a little boy who's dreaming of the day that he will be like you. You're the little fellow's idol. You're the wisest of the wise. In his little mind about you, no suspicion ever rise. He believes in you devoutly, holds all you say and do. He will say and do in your way when he's grown up to be just like you. There's a wide-eyed little fellow who believes you're always right and his eyes are always opened and he watches day and night. You are setting an example every day in all you do for the little boy who's waiting to grow up to be just like you. You see, someone put it well. They said, it's not what you're taught, but it's what you caught that sticks. And I guess when we talk about the goals that you have for your kids, it really comes down to, first, what are the goals that you have for yourself? How do you define success? How do you define a life that is well-lived, that is a life that's fulfilled, a life that is meaningful, the life of great purpose? Because I know in my generation, it, it looked a certain way, that it had some kind of corporate monogram with a, uh, a corporate accoutrements that went with it. It had a financial definition. All these things were statused out in our culture that he who died with the most toys won and so forth and so on. And then suddenly to come to a place in Christ, we're realizing that all of that is in, term, in terms of eternal values, just rubbish. And what really matters is knowing God and walking with Him and thereby finding what your life is really all about. The whole point is, are you modeling that? Because whatever you're doing, your kids are going to see that. I remember years ago uh, at a conference, pastor's conference, they asked if that uh, my, my oldest son would come and join me in co-teaching a, a workshop for pastors about raising kids in the pastoral family. And uh, I, I remember doing this with some degree of trepidation because I thought, you know, he has 45 minutes, I have 45 minutes, and I have no control over what he's going to say in his half. I said, this could be really a humbling moment in my life. And it, w- it was just an interesting because... Here's the thing that struck me, first of all, was he talked about seminal moments in his life that shaped him that I was totally unaware of, things that went on that I didn't even take note of, and then there were other things that I thought would be these defining moments he had no memory of. But I think the thing that touched me the most was when he said to these pastors, when I grew up and I'd walk by my dad's study. I'd see him reading the Word. I'd see him on his knees in prayer. I'd see my parents go into the room and pray whenever there was a crisis. That had left an imprint upon me. That God was real. My son told me, he says, you know, often I'd have people in the church coming saying, well, what's your dad like at home? And he said, I usually get puzzled by the question because it's like, he's just dad? <laughs> And he said, I suddenly realized that they thought, well, you're one person at the church and you're this other person at home. And he said, no, you're pretty much the same jerk everywhere. (laughs) Well, he didn't say that, but I'll do anything for a cheap laugh. And that problem came to me from my great, 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 great grandfather. He passed it. (laughs) But, But I really want to leave you with this question and I, I hope it troubles you because it's important. I hope it hangs over you because it's, it's critical. When you think about what are your goals for your kids, are they based upon what you've discovered are God's goals for you? Are you really living to seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus said, and His righteousness? And He says, if you do that, everything else will be taken care of. And I don't know, all I can say is for nearly 50 years, I've tried to follow that truth and I've found it's played out really well. And when you model that for your kids, they will absorb that naturally. Oh, I'm not saying they will never kick against the goads, that they'll never struggle against your authority, that they'll go through their individuation conflicts and all that kind of stuff. 
But the bottom line is that at the end of the day, they're going to know that you knew God. And when they come to those points of crisis in their life, those moments will be crisis of conversion, not crisis of collapse. Because I see it with young people all the time. They come into crisis moments in their life and they collapse because they have nothing else to turn to. If your parents have defined financial success as being the secret to a happy life, what do you do when you find yourself deep in debt and no job prospects? You go through a crisis of identity. And many times, young people will stoop to doing things that are unethical, sometimes illegal, if not just outright immoral, because it becomes all important to have those symbols of success. Because even though their mom and dad said they were Christians, really the God they served was a God of mammon, of financial prosperity. So it's really, really critically important. If you think there's one thing that you can do that will shape and mold your kid's life, it's how you respond to the command of Christ to seek first His kingdom above everything else. Because His promise again is, I'll take care of the other stuff. I've got a plan for your kid's life. I'm exerting influence in your kid's life. And I'm reaching out to them and extending myself and influencing them to bring them to the knowledge of, of God in the truest sense. But that is going to be hindered if you're not allowing that to happen in your own life. But as I said, there are things that we must do as well, are part of the equation. We are called to be co-laborers with Christ. And there are three things that Paul outlined here. The first thing he says, train them in the Lord. Don't just train them, but train them in the Lord. That's always the objective, is in the Lord. We need to instruct them with patience. And Proverbs 22, 6 again, he says, uh, teach your children to choose the right path. Teach them to choose the right path, and when they are older, they will remain upon it. Why do you have to choose, teach them to choose the right path? Because more often than not, their natural instinct will be to choose the wrong path. That we need to not only instruct, we need to correct with gentleness. When he says in verse 4, you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Don't enrage them, exasperate them. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the parallel passage of Colossians 3.21, where he says, parents, don't come down too hard on your children or you'll crush their spirit. There are many kids that are angry and frustrated because of the neglect or the harshness by which their parents respond. I said neglect. When we don't discipline our kids, they become resentful because they need your guidance and they know it. And when we correct them too harshly and too stringently, we act as if our identity is being attacked. And that's oftentimes what happens with Christian parents. Is, You're embarrassing me in front of my friends. Maybe you need embarrassing. Maybe we need to let down the pretense that we got it all together. Maybe your neighbors need to see you struggling with your kids' issues because they're struggling with theirs. And there's a level of relatability that you have now. Besides, once they pass puberty, they have become accountable for their own decisions and choices. Instruct, correct, but again, I come back to practice, what you preach as best you can. Bob Euchre, who's a former professional baseball player, he was a commentator, a comedian, very funny guy, much funnier than he was, well, not quite as funny as when he played the game. Uh, I think his batting average when he got out was like 183 or something like that. He was a catcher, wasn't a great ball player, but what a sense of humor. And he made the statement one time, he said about his son's little league experience, he said, he struck out three times and lost the game when the ball went through his legs. Parents swore at us and threw things at our car as we left the parking lot. 
Gosh, I was proud. A chip off the old block. <laughs> but that's what we, they are going to be. They're going to be chips off the old block. So it's important that we try to give them something to work with. Your kids don't need you to be perfect, but they do need you to be passionate for Christ. But secondly, he says, we need to teach them to honor and obey. My friend David Guzik in his commentary makes this comment. He says, we don't need to teach our children how to disobey because they have each inherited an inclination of sin from Adam. But obedience must be taught. Disobedience must be punished so that obedience can be learned. You see, we have to help them make a difference between right and wrong. Because we increasingly live in a world that says there is no distinction any longer unless it's personally offensive to me, and that's a moving target that I don't even know how to hit. We need to teach them to honor. You know, it's interesting because we need to teach them thirdly that we need to admonish them, he says, to not only know that there is right and wrong, that there is such a thing as absolute truth. And this may seem elementary to many of us because we think, doesn't everybody agree with that? No. Increasingly, we're told that whatever is your primary preference, that's your truth, that's your reality. It reminds me of a debate that uh, Rabbi Zacharias was in with a, a professor from a Western university. And it's kind of ironic, Rabbi Zacharias grew, grew up as a Hindu. He was a Brahmin, the top caste of the Brahmins, very well-educated, informed man, came to Christ at 19 after trying to commit suicide. And here he's in this debate with his American professor, and the American says to him, well, Dr. Rabbi Zacharias, you need to understand that in the West, we see things as being either or, but in the East, they see it's as both and. And Dr. Zacharias, he says, well, sir, even in India, we look both ways before we cross the street <laughs> because it's either me or the bus. It's not going to be both and. You see, what happens is when kids or people grow up in a world where they're saying, well, you know, you have your truth, I have your tr my truth. What blows that out of the water is reality. If something is true, it agrees with the way things really are. And we're living in a crazy, confusing time when guys like Elon Musk, who, you know, the creator of the Tesla and, and all this other stuff, believes that we are actually living in a matrix, that this is all a computer-generated machine, and the goal of humanity is to work our way and to escape the matrix. I'm thinking, how can somebody so brilliant be so stupid? It's like the guy who, the Christian science gentleman who said, I, I don't believe that there's such a thing as pain. I think it's just an illusion. So his friend snuck up on him one day and he took out a needle and he jabbed it right in his rear end. And the guy howled and screamed. And, and when he finally settled down, his friend asked him, so do you still believe there's no such thing as pain? And he said, well, you know, that felt exactly the way I thought pain would feel if it was real. <laughs> the mind, the brain is this amazing machine that has this capacity to, to take great leaps of nonsense in order to avoid having to face reality. You don't think that applies to you, just next time your husband or your wife wants to point out some small little thing in your personality that they'd like to see change, and you'll find that you'll take great leaps of nonsense to avoid having to face that. The simple fact is kids need to grow up and realize there are absolute truths and that if you, you're going to reap what you sow. I was just talk, reading this article on, on student debt. You know, the average student coming out of college owes $37,000. And, and he said, that, and they were talking about how that many people are going and they're borrowing this money and they're not seeing it as real money. And they, they operate under this illusion that when they finish school, they'll get this great high-paying job 
And therefore, their student debt, no matter how large it is, will be insignificant, inconsequential, and it won't be a problem. And this one financial planner said what they don't understand is if you live like a lawyer when you're a student, when you become a lawyer, you'll have to live like a student. (laughs) The reality is that you've inflated your, your income to the point where you now have to work 10 times as hard to get free from it. And this simple reality, the simple reality of of financial math will catch up with you. You see, we need to teach kids that our actions have consequences. If you sow to the flesh, the Scripture says, you will reap corruption. If you follow your natural insects, there will be consequences. And I'm stunned by how many young people today don't really know that because they haven't been told that. And even one of the consequences he talks here is really a big one. Honor your father and your mother. What does that mean, honor? It means to hold them in high esteem, to give them a high estimation, to prize and to value them, and particularly the godly instruction and advice they give you. Why? Why should I do it? Well, he says, because it's the first commandment that God gave that had a promise attached to it. In other words, if you do this, this is what I will do for you. And what is it God says in doing that, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Here's an interesting concept that we don't teach kids anymore. You treat your parents with disregard, disobedience, and disrespect. God says you'll suffer for it later in life. I think this applies not only to us as kids, I think it applies to us as adults as well. That there's this concept that God says, I want you to honor those who have gone before you. Well, we live in a culture that doesn't honor much of anything anymore. We just watch our political dialogue and it's, it's so disrespectful and rude and hateful and insulting and, I mean, across the board. And we live in this this kind of society and somehow we become the same way. We become experts in what's wrong with everybody else. We're defined not by what we're for, we're defined by what we're against. And that all stems out of this failure to recognize there is honor that should be shown to whom honor is due. Honor your mother and your father. And he says, God will bring blessing upon your life. Dishonor them. And he says, what you're going to find is that not only will things not be blessed in your life, but you'll find that your days may be numbered. Your time might be short. My father didn't come to Christ until his deathbed. And I remember when I realized, discovered this passage of Scripture, I started, every time I had an issue that came up, I'd call him up and say, Dad, I'm thinking about this or wondering about this. What do you think I should do? And I'll be honest, nine times out of ten, his advice was not very good. <laughs> I mean, he looked at it from a purely non-spiritual perspective. And then I'd go and my wife and I would pray and we'd, we'd do what we felt God. And then my dad would say, well, how did that work out? I said, Dad, it was great, thanks. Worked out great. <laughs> Because I just thought, you know, I need to honor my dad. And what was interesting is that as I got older, he got smarter. Mark Twain put it this way. He says, when I was 14, my dad was the dumbest man on the planet. When I turned 21, I was surprised by how much he had learned in seven short years. (laughs) You see, there's something about obeying God in these things. Anyway, I better stop. This is a good place to start the conversation. Remembering your prayers of you this week, I'm going to be up in Canada doing a conference, pastor's conference up there, so you can just pray that God will help me to say something that isn't stupid, (laughs) that can be helpful. Father God, I thank you for your word and, and the truth that it brings into our life, because that truth matches the real world, and If we really want to talk about getting real, then we need to know the truth. And if we want to navigate life successfully, we need to know what are really the central issues around which our lives revolve. 
I pray if we take away nothing else from this morning that we would all be really impacted by the reality of seeking first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. Because only then will the things that we need to have added to our lives to make them of greater value can be experienced. We want value-added lives. We want value added to the lives of our children, Lord. And so I pray, God, that we would seek first you with the confidence that in your sovereignty and your sanctity and in your grace that you will make a difference and you'll cover all the other things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We invite you to come and partake of the elements of communion. They are here and available for you. Um, as I often try to remind us, it, it, no matter what the topic is, no matter what scripture we're talking about, I think it always brings us back to this point because what we're really talking about is simply learning how to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. That when I partake of these elements, what I am declaring to God is I am making a commitment yet again, Lord, to follow you. Your body was given for me, your blood was poured out, your life was shed for my sins, and I recognize that you saved me, you sacrificed yourself so that I could present my life, my body as a living sacrifice. And so I invite you to respond to God and testify to him and make that confession of faith. God, I, I commit myself to you. Help me to do that. If you like prayer, we'll, there's some of us will be available to pray with you during the service, but I invite you just to respond to God in whichever way he may have ministered to your life this morning.